our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Then we talked about the uh, young man in our gospel lesson uh, at the beginning of the service, how he opened himself up to Jesus with his question about eternal life, made himself vulnerable to Jesus. Uh, people feel vulnerable in lots of ways and lots of different reasons, for lots of different reasons. Uh, when do you feel most vulnerable? In a social situation, maybe? Job interview? When you're being honest? When you're teaching your teen to drive? Maybe in the workplace? You know, someone answered this question right before my colonoscopy. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. What about when you're having a friend or maybe a new neighbor over for dinner? or a casual acquaintance from the office, or a club. Uh, eventually, they're, they're liable to have access to the medicine cabinet in your bathroom, right? Now, you'd like to think they wouldn't look, and they'd like to think they wouldn't look, uh, but, right? You know, one place you might actually be vulnerable that you haven't thought about yet is your junk drawer, because your junk drawer says a lot about you. Some people believe that that drawer is really a little historical cache of information about you. Without saying a word, all those items might tell a story about what makes you happy, uh, what kind of things hold sentimental value for you. They could be like a, a tiny time capsule of your life, a scrapbook of memories. Or it could just be a place to keep a flashlight, some spare batteries, a pen, a couple screwdrivers, a measuring tape, and a roll each of duct tape and scotch tape so that you don't have to walk all the way out to the garage the next time you need them. But that's no fun to talk about. So let's look at some of the darker secrets they may hold that reveal what kind of person you might be. Drawer number one, might call it waste not, want not. In this person's junk drawer, you'll probably find paper clips, chopsticks, stubby little two-inch pencils with no erasers, sold soy sauce packets or Taco Bell sauce packets, a stained takeout menu and charging cords for they don't fit anything you owned uh, since 2000, right? They're convinced that they'll use those things someday and may even promise themselves they will. But old sauce packets? Nah, I don't think so. It's a nice thought to save the planet by saving the landfills, but not at the expense of your personal storage space uh, or your health. Drawer number two. I know there's a pair of scissors in here somewhere. This drawer is so disorganized that you'll never find anything in it except maybe by luck because there's no order to it. Just opening it makes you feel out of control. You might find an old used appliance part or some small change, but not the scissors you need. Now, why do they always seem to migrate to the bottom and the back? Do you suppose that junk drawer reflects the general condition of its owner's life? Hopefully not, because they have everything they really need somewhere. They just can't seem to pull it all together. And as a result, some important things might get missed or simply pass them by. Drawer number three, you can't be too prepared. This drawer is totally organized, okay? All 32 pens and pencils are in their own storage compartment. All three flashlights are ready to go in theirs. There are enough paper clips for the next decade. They have backups for their backups. Somebody really ought to tell them about Amazon's one-day delivery and that the zombie, the zombie apocalypse is just a myth. I'll bet if they're that prepared and organized in a drawer that you can't even see, they're ready for anything, or they think they are. Okay, Their whole life 
is planned and laid out in, in one long straight line from here to eternity. But boring. Sometimes a little spontaneity can be a good thing. You know, a surprise now and then. The rich young man in our gospel lesson thought he had it all figured out. He was just making sure. You know, and boy, did he get a surprise. Drawer number four we could call the indecisive drawer, also known as the procrastination receptacle. This person puts off tossing things because, after all, where would it go? I mean, sure, maybe I could put it in another drawer, in another room, uh, but, you know, it's mostly trash, and, and, and maybe you could look for a way to donate it all to someone in need, but really it's just a, a just-for-now drawer, you know, until, until the person can get around with dealing with it. Now, maybe just like some of the things in their life, Maybe some eternally important things. So anyway, while your friends and your therapists may be interested in what you keep in your junk drawer, God is interested in what you keep in your heart. And if he doesn't really want to find it all cluttered up with things that don't uh, ultimately concern him. But it happens, just like your junk drawers. You know, they didn't get filled up with all that stuff at once. It happened over time, a little bit at a time. And in the same way, you could be in danger of covering up that God-shaped hole in your heart that only he's able to fill. Like the rich young man in today's gospel lesson, we all know how easy it is to identify ourselves or define ourselves by our possessions, our things, our stuff. It's natural because we all like to think of ourselves as self-made. It's, it's, it's an ego thing. Uh, but don't forget that God was part of it too. But this young man was so possessed by his stuff that he wasn't able to unstuff himself, either for, either for the sake of the poor or for his very own quest for eternal life. And we get more details in this story from Matthew and Luke's account. That's how important it must have been to the Holy Spirit to have it written down three different times for the early church. It rates three Gospels, and so as a benefit, we get more details. Where Mark calls him a man, Luke calls him a ruler. And while that could have made him a prince, it's more likely that he was a, a ruler or manager of the local synagogue. Matthew's Greek, uh, New Testament was written in Greek, tells us that he was a young man, probably somewhere between his mid-20s and mid-30s, uh, what we would call a millennial today. Hence, the general referral to this lesson is the story of the rich young ruler. He was probably a well-respected member of his community. Now, we don't know what Jesus had done or said to bring this young man to him on the run, May just be like Mark tells us that Jesus was preparing to leave this village and go on to the next. Maybe the young man didn't want him to get away without a chance to ask him his all-important question. The problem was it was the wrong question for a few reasons. First, he was wrong to think that there was something special he could do to gain entrance into heaven. And second, he was wrong to think that he could do it if he only knew it. And third, he was giving Jesus a chance to dig through his junk drawer, something that was make any of us uncomfortable. He's going to expose publicly this young man's vulnerabilities, even though it's for his own good. Certainly the man has great respect for Jesus as a teacher. When he reaches him, he kneels down before him and addresses him as a as good teacher. It's a sign of humility and honor, uh, respect. Whatever answer he was looking for, he felt like Jesus had already obtained it. Not that Jesus was the answer. He's not quite there yet but that Jesus had already obtained the answer to the question we've all asked. Good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? A young man had come to Jesus with a question he thought was, uh, was deep and challenging. What do I have to do to get into heaven? That's what he was really saying. You know, and everybody who was ever allowed for even the smallest possibility that there might be life after this life has asked the same thing. How do we get there? But like so many others before him and since, you can hear how far off the mark he is. He doesn't ask how eternal life is obtained. He asks, what must I do to obtain it? Not many people would have tried to argue that Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't a, a great example of godly morality. He would go out of his way to associate with and do good for all sorts of people, even the ones that the, the laws of the rabbis forbid good Jews to associate with, uh, sinners, tax collectors, uh, women of questionable reputation. Jesus never even saw the lines he, he supposedly crossed. He only saw people, people who needed that unique peace with God that he'd come to bring. This young man desired the right thing. He desired life eternal. And in his quest to achieve it, he'd lived an exemplary life. His brain was lying to him that he was right on track, but his heart was telling him something was still lacking. And it was his heart that brought him to Jesus. He was attracted by the Lord's goodness and wisdom, but at the same time, he'd been following the wrong map, one that would ultimately lead to his destruction. See, heaven isn't ours by the best life we can live. It's ours by faith in the perfect life Jesus lived for us. It's not something we do. It's something we receive by faith. All the doing has already been done for us. You know, it's an important difference. And for the sake of this young man's eternal future, Jesus wants to drive that point home. You know the commandments Jesus tells him. And he rattles off some of the, the big ten, the, the ones that deal with our relationship with others. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your parents. Don't defraud the Ninth and Ten Commandments that warn about the dangers of wanting something that somebody else already has. Teacher, he says, all these I've kept from my youth. Well, that's pretty unlikely. Uh, it's impossible, really, when you understand what they really entail. That young man may have been sincere, but he was also sincerely wrong. If anyone says, I've kept the, kept the Ten Commandments perfectly from the beginning of my life until now, you automatically know two things about that person. Number one, they don't know anything about the real meaning of the Ten Commandments. And number two, they really don't know anything about themselves. It's another brain lie, a trick of faulty reasoning. They're deceived. They've either been deceived from the, from the inside by themselves and their sinful natures, or from the outside by dark forces who have nothing better to do than hang around and try to deceive us. Take Luther's explanation of the Seventh Commandment, for example. You shall not steal. It sounds black and white. Either you have or you haven't. Martin Luther explains there's a lot more to it. He says it means we should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or his possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. See, not just don't take them, help him to keep them. When Jesus was asked once about the two greatest commandments, he boiled all ten down to just two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor, uh, not only by, well, that's how you do it, right? Not only by not stealing his stuff, but by helping him to keep it. Luther does the same thing with each commandment to demonstrate the, the depth of them. So no one but Jesus ever kept the commandments perfectly. 
uh, he, he does take this young man at his word in order to, to bring the real lesson home, to touch upon his real problem. He says, you want eternal life? You still lack one thing. Go, sell everything you have and, and, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Well, the young man's outward life might have seemed like it was in the right place, but Jesus sees that, it, that his heart is far from right. His possessions have uh, somehow possessed him. His stuff has stuffed his heart so full of worldly things that they buried the truth that salvation isn't really about anything we've done, but it's what Jesus has done for us. Not only did he live a perfect life in our place, the life this young man uh, imagined he'd led, but all too soon the Lord is going to allow himself to be nailed to a cross where his lifeblood will be poured out for this young man and for all people to pay the price for the whole world's sins. This man has to clear his heart of all the junk he's been keeping there. His love of money and stuff. He had to reclaim the, that God space for the God who sends his Holy Spirit to direct us to the road of salvation. The one marked by faith alone. The one that puts God in his rightful place first over all. So Jesus lays a hard truth on him. Some tough love. And you have to feel for the guy, but did you catch how Mark did it? said he did it. I think it's uh, probably the best part of the whole reading. Before Jesus lays the truth on this poor guy, Mark says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's right before he tells him to sell everything and give it away to the poor. After that, he says, come back and follow me. That's not like a God who wants anybody to end up in hell. Not to me. Jesus loved this young man. And sure, he had a hard lesson to learn about wealth and about possessions and about all the stuff we cling to so tightly, things that can eventually get a death grip on us. But people choose hell by rejecting Jesus. And Jesus looked at him, and looking at him, loved him. That's not a simple friendship sort of love either, not a brotherly kind of love. Mark uses the word for the highest love of all, agape love, that self-sacrificing love with which God loves all his creation. And disheartened, Mark tells us, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You have to wonder if we'll meet him in heaven someday, don't you? If he ever came to his senses. I hope so. Now, was Jesus requiring anything different of this young ruler than he requires of you and me? No. No, now this is the only time we know of that Jesus asked a person to give everything away. So, you know, don't go there for points. Don't go home and call your realtor. Jesus knew that, he was, that giving his earthly possessions away was what this man needed to do in order to make room for faith in Christ alone. He's not asking us to do that likewise. Uh, you can't use this story as a directive from God to stay poor or that if you aren't poor, you aren't godly. This wasn't uh, a work this man needed to perform in exchange for his salvation. It was more like heart surgery or clutter counseling. This was his issue. You know, Zacchaeus, the tax collector who had hosted Jesus one time for dinner, wasn't required to give up all his possessions. Joseph of Arimathea, another follower of the Lord, uh, was wealthy. Peter owned a home in Capernaum. John had a home where he could bring Jesus' mother Mary in order to provide for after Jesus' crucifixion. The chief sin in this young man's heart was his love of earthly possessions to the point that there wasn't any room left for Jesus. The Lord merely peeled away the layers cleared out all the, the junk piled over it and laid it bare for everyone to see. For that young man, his great possessions had become his prison. 
For you, it might be something else, something of your own making that, that makes that God space in your heart cluttered and covered, something apart from a physical disability that's convinced you once or twice a month is regular church attendance. Now, I got to tell you, once or twice, twice a month is not regular church attendance. In fact, it's pretty irregular. And no one wants to be plagued with irregularity. You're with me on that, right? No, it's not just about church attendance, though. That's just one symptom of a problem. Maybe in your life there needs to be a sorrowful, uh, contrite repentance. Maybe pride is the kind of thing you need to give away by giving it over to God. So do it. Because whatever is clinging to you so tightly that it's keeping you from, from allowing God in or keeping God out will eventually begin clinging just as tightly to you. Maybe you're struggling with selfishness or addiction or weekend hobbies or even sleeping in on Sunday mornings. Maybe you've been caught up in our culture's obsession with success at all costs, the working seven days a week kind. And you think you're making this great sacrifice, but what you're really sacrificing is time with God to get refreshed and renewed and get your batteries recharged. You're missing out on a chance to bask in his love and the promise of forgiveness and restoration for Jesus' sake. Maybe your clutter is at all too common nowadays drive for physical perfection. Paul wrote that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit who lives in you. But a temple is a, a place of worship, not a thing to be worshipped. Whatever it is, you know, whatever has taken your heart, the heart that was given over to God at your baptism, uh, may be holding you hostage. Now, Jesus' victory on Calvary is all about freeing us from those chains, but you have to want it. You have to want God more. When Jesus shows this man the way to salvation, he's showing us too. That's why we have this story preserved for us in the Gospels. Salvation is a level playing field. It's the same for everybody. Jesus died for the whole world. All the work that would ever be needed was accomplished on the Good Friday cross and the empty tomb on Easter morning. Whatever your desire, uh, your heart's treasure is here on earth, if it's keeping Christ out, if it's blocking, covering up that God-shaped place in your heart, you need to give it up and put Jesus in his rightful place. You know, make him your treasure in this life. And he promises heavenly treasures as his free gift. That's all he was trying to get across to this young man. You know, blessings from God are good things, but be wearing, wary that those blessings don't become a curse by separating you from God. You know, maybe it's time for a little fall heart cleaning. Time to dump out that junk drawer, turn it upside down, right, and rediscover that place where God dwells. Think about it, and then do it. You'll be blessed. Amen. Now, may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive your gifts.